you take a seat. And we're continuing this evening in our series in 2 Samuel, not many to go now, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 18, so if you have a Bible, uh, please do grab it and turn to 2 Samuel 18. It will really help you, as always, to be able to see the passage that we're looking at in front of you. Uh, if you haven't got a, a paper copy, you'll find the Bible on the internet if you need to, or um, grab one from one of our stewards at the back here, 2 Samuel 18, page 268, if you're using one of the red church Bibles. If you remember, David has been on the run, driven out of Jerusalem by his um, conspiring son, Absalom. And so we reach the moment of crisis here in 2 Samuel 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. 
Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimeaz cried out to the Lord, all is well. Cried out to the king, sorry, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimeaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news for my lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. You have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your mouth until, from your youth until now. 
Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Let's pray together for God's help. Father, we pray that you would help us as we open your word together. Uh, Help us to listen carefully. Help us to understand clearly what it is you want us to hear. And help us to respond in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what happens to a person when they make an enemy out of God's king? Jesus says lots of very direct things in the Gospels, doesn't he? And here's one of them. This is Matthew 12, verse 30. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And just like that, the Lord Jesus divides the human race in two. Those who are with him, his subjects, his disciples, and those who are against him everyone else. Everyone in human history belongs in one of those two groups. And the question we're asking tonight is what happens to a person if they refuse to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, God's King, right to the end? We have a test case here in the person of Absalom. He is, remember, the king's son, but he wants to be more He's driven his father out of the capital. He's publicly humiliated him in front of the people. And now in chapter 18, the battle lines are drawn. Can a person fight God's chosen king and win? Could Absalom? Can we? First, see with me, first of two, the certainty of destruction. This is 18, verses 1 to 18. Well, as chapter 18 begins, the time for political posturing and propaganda is over, and it's time to fight. And uh, so as the rightful head of the armed forces, David organizes his troops. Now, David's numbers, his troop numbers in verse 1 may sound large, but remember, do you remember how Absalom's troops were described? Just look back in chapter 17, verse 11, where we learn, chapter 17, verse 11, that all Israel has been gathered to Absalom And they are as the sand by the sea for multitude. It's a classic Bible description of a massive number. If soldiers are like grains of sand, David has a sand pit, and Absalom has, as it were, the whole of the coastline. It doesn't, by the way, reflect very well, does it, on all Israel, so easily led into treason against God's king by a man like Absalom. But it is a pattern that we see repeated throughout the Bible. And of course, the clearest example is with Christ himself. You remember John chapter 1? We read that he, that is Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then in chapter 3, we discover why. This is the judgment, writes John. The light has come into the world, that's the Lord Jesus, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. This is what we do by nature. It's common, isn't it, for people to say, for us to hear, that human beings are basically good. But that's very hard to square with the fact that when the Son of God, God's chosen King, came to earth on a mission of love, humanity, our species, killed him. This is what we're like. By nature, we live in the darkness. We hate the light. God gives us a David, but we choose Absalom. Well, however big David's army was, we learn he divides it under three commanders. Two of the commanders are his nephews, 
Joab and Abishai. And the third is Ittai the Gittite, the loyal Philistine that we met back in chapter 15. Now you'd think it would be a rebuke, wouldn't you, to God's people that a Philistine was more loyal to God's true king than them. Well, David assumes that he's going to march with the army, but the soldiers know the worth of God's king. They persuade him to stay at the base in Mahanaim. But before they march, David has one request. It's heard by everyone, and it's there in chapter 18, verse 5. You'll have heard it as we read through verse 5. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now, Absalom may have been a very wicked man. He may have been David's enemy, but he is still his son. And so to war. Did you notice the account of the battle is surprisingly short? If a a filmmaker got hold of this story, they'd stretch out verses 6 to 8 of chapter 18 into an epic, the the clashing of swords, that mad chases through the forest, victory swinging this way and then that. But, But the reason for the shortness of the report is simple. It was a foregone conclusion. The writer can't build tension here because he's already given the game away, hasn't he, the ending in 17 verse 14. Would you just flick back and check? We saw this with Adam last week. Verse 14. Halfway down, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The ending's been given away. God's already decided that Absalom's going to lose. Which is why we read in verse 8 of chapter 18 that the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. The terrain, the difficult terrain, claimed more lives than David's army. It's why, too, in verse 9, as Absalom is riding along on his mule, it's a a king's transport, surely a deliberate choice for the the pretender to the throne. He, verse 9, we read, just happens to meet the servants of David. And then he just happens to get his head stuck between presumably two tree branches, leaving him hanging helplessly between heaven and earth as his royal transport flees away. We read that, and we might call all of that a, a string of strange coincidences if we didn't know better, if we didn't know what book this is that we're reading. These are, of course, God incidences. And there's one more clue here, that it's God, really, who's fighting against Absalom. And it's that word suspended there in verse 9. Have a look down. See that word suspended? His head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended, or he was hanging between heaven and earth. It's the same word used earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 22 and 23. I'll I'll read it for, for us. This is from Israel's law. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, And he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. There's the word. You hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for, and here it comes again, a hanged man is cursed by God. In the old covenant where Israel was God's nation state, death by hanging was a sign for everybody to see that they had died under God's curse, under God's judgment. And so this is what happens to Absalom. He discovers that you pick a fight with God's king and you're picking a fight with God himself. And that's just not a fight you can win. Well, while Absalom hangs from the tree, Joab hears of it. Joab, we're learning, is not a patient man. He's not a principled man either. He's a a political pragmatist. 
Joab thinks, look, forget what David says. David's great enemy is, is hanging here on a tree. He's waiting to be finished off. So Joab does just that in verse 14 with a bit of help from his armor bearers. And just like that, the battle is over. All of that build up and then done in just a few verses. Joab blows a trumpet, his troops back off, and Absalom's men run for their lives. And that really is the end of Absalom. The end of his campaign, the end of his conspiracy against God's king. Except for a little postscript, a very telling one there in verses 17 and 18. In those verses, we, we, we learn about two monuments one has been set up by Absalom, and another, you could say, has been set up by the Lord. Absalom's intended monument, have a look with me, is there in verse 18. You see it down there in verse 18. At some point, apparently, Absalom has, had decided that in, in the absence of any living heirs, he needed to build a monument to his own greatness for the sake of posterity and future generations, a, a pillar to his glorious royalty in the appropriately named King's Valley. And like the, the, the humble man that he was, verse 18, he named the monument after himself. Absalom's monument. Now, this sort of thing isn't unheard of, is it, even today? Uh, wealthy people build great big buildings and name them after themselves. Now, even little ordinary people want to leave a legacy, some monument to their own greatness, their own achievements. It's, in many cases, an expression of a heart turned inward, a, a tangible demonstration of human pride. And Absalom's monument here in verse 18 is in stark contrast to other monuments we've seen in Samuel before. Do you, do you remember Samuel himself built a monument back in 1 Samuel 7? It's a real revision of the book, isn't it? Let me remind you, we read in 1 Samuel 7 that Samuel took a stone and he called its name, not Samuel's monument, but Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. You see the contrast? Absalom, Absalom's monument celebrated his own greatness. Samuel's monument celebrated the greatness of his God, the greatness and the help of his God. And that is a perfect picture, I think, of the whole point of this book. It searches us. Is my life a monument to my own greatness? Or is it a monument to the greatness of my God? What characterizes my life day to day? Is it a commitment to my own fame and glory as Absalom's was? Or is it a commitment to the fame and the glory of my God? Is my life telling the story of how wonderfully I've helped myself or how wonderfully my God has helped me? Is it I did it my way or wonderfully in my life God has done it his way? Well, verse 18 of this chapter here is, is the legacy that Absalom planned to leave. But it seems that it's verse 17 that describes the legacy he actually left for the people of Israel. He comes to a particularly ignominious end, doesn't he, Absalom? Verse 17, see how he ends? And they took great and glorious Absalom, verse 17, and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. 
And so children could walk past that heap of stones in years to come, and they could ask their parents, Mum, Dad, what does that heap of stones mean? And their parents could say, it's a reminder of what happens when we make an enemy of God's king. That's Absalom's real legacy, a grim warning not to make ourselves an enemy of God's Messiah. And the world still needs to hear that warning today. I hear it expressed. Uh, for example, in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, a day is coming, we're told, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. For Christ's enemies, destruction is coming. And did you notice there what makes a person deserving of that destruction? What characterizes an enemy of Christ? Now, they don't have to actively campaign against Christianity or picket church services or write anti-Christian books to make themselves Christ's enemy. All they need to do, all we would need to do, is refuse to obey Christ's command, to refuse to obey the gospel, to, to refuse to repent and bow the knee to him. So I need to say this evening that if you haven't done that, this passage is a warning to you as well. See here in Absalom the certainty of God's judgment on his enemies. See the foolishness, see the futility of picking a fight with God by picking a fight with his king. Put down your weapons and bow before the Lord Jesus. And of course, for those of us who have done that already, we need this chapter too, don't we? Not least to breathe fresh urgency into our gospel mission. We are easily dazzled by the apparent security of those around us. We need to see where their rejection of Jesus will take them and urgently warn them. The world cannot pick a fight with the Lord Jesus and win. Do they know that? Will we tell them? But second, see here in uh, chapter 18 and 19, the tragedy of destruction. Now, the rest of the passage shows us David's reaction to Absalom's death. Now, Joab has seen this something like it before. He knows that David might not take this very well. He would remember how in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David had punished a young man for reporting Saul's death as though it were good news. How much riskier it would be to report Absalom's to David. So when Ahimeaz volunteers as a messenger, an Israelite as a messenger, Joab sends a foreigner, a Cushite, instead, perhaps because he was more expendable in Joab's eyes. But Ahimeaz, we, we realize, knows a faster route than the Cushite, and so in 18 verse 23, he reaches David first. And there's the king. He's waiting inside the outer walls of Mahanaim for news. And Ahimeaz makes his report, but his report is strange, isn't it? Did you notice that as we read it? When David presses Ahimeaz on Absalom, verse 29, Ahimeaz says, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. 
He shrugs his shoulders. I don't know what's happened to Absalom. It's very odd. Didn't Joab tell him back in verse 20? Was, uh, was Ahimeas protecting himself? It's very hard to know. Regardless of his reason, though, the Cushite, when he arrives, just blurts it all out there in verse 32. He holds nothing back. He doesn't perhaps recognize the effect it might have on David or doesn't really mind either way. As far as he's concerned, this is the most fantastic news to report. The king's greatest enemy is dead. They should celebrate. But then Absalom was no ordinary enemy. See David's reaction there in verse 33. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had, I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's the sound of the breaking of a father's heart. David's so broken by it that Joab, that um, political pragmatist, feels the need in the rest of our reading to rebuke the king for the effect it's having on the men. Joab clearly feels that David's grief is misplaced in verses 5 to 7, but is it really misplaced? I'm not so sure. Isn't David wrestling with the same tension that perhaps we feel? The Christian knows that the defeat of Christ's enemies is, in one sense, good news. When the Bible reaches its crescendo in the book of Revelation, one of the reasons we're given to praise God, we learn, will be his victory over his enemies. God will be vindicated as God. His justice will be seen and on public display. Christ will be victorious. Evil will be destroyed forever. And yet, when we think about what that actually means, people we know, people we love. It is also a tragedy, isn't it? If we feel no sense of the tragedy of judgment, aren't we out of step with God's own heart? That's something like where the prophet Jonah was, wasn't it? Do you remember him? Sent to preach repentance to Nineveh and then grabbing his popcorn and waiting with glee for the sulfur to fall from heaven and Remember his bitter disappointment when God responded to their repentance with mercy? There are Jonas around today, professing Christians who talk casually about God's judgment and proclaim God's judgment with a sort of a glee which seems to be a long way removed from God's own heart. Hear God's heart here in, for example, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Speaking about his own people here, he says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You hear Christ's heart in Luke 19 as he looks out over the very people and city that's rejected him. When he, that is Christ, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If only you'd accepted my offer of peace, if only you'd turned. Or Matthew 23, 
Christ again. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Or one more here, Paul. Paul's heart for his countrymen in Romans 9. Here's a man who is so crystal clear on the judgment of Christ to come. It's his words we read earlier in 2 Thessalonians 1, and yet here's his heart in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Sometimes when it comes to God's judgment on a rebellious world, we can feel forced to choose between clarity on the one hand and compassion on the other. Isn't this how the battles in the Church of England recently have been reported by certain people? There, there are, we're told, that the bishops, on, on, the bishops who believe in God's judgment on the one hand and the bishops who care about people on the other. That is a false choice. No one has ever been clearer on God's coming judgment than the Lord Jesus. And no one has ever felt such compassion for those hurtling towards it as he. Have we lost sight of this? That the people we see on the tube every day, the colleague across the office, the mum at the school gate, if they continue to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're heading for destruction. Does that bother us? Does Does it break our hearts? One of our goals this year is to make more of a gospel impression on our local area. Why? Because we know that there are people on our doorstep here in Richmond who are, as it stands, heading for an eternity in hell, and that bothers us. We can't know that and do nothing. God's judgment on those who insist on rejecting his king is certain and tragic. It's a grim passage, isn't it? Again. But there is a chink of light here, if you know where to look, and I think it's there in verse 33. Look carefully again at what David says in his grief. Second half of verse 33. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son my son. Now, look, on, on one level, that's simply an expression of David's powerlessness, isn't it? He'd, he'd love to have taken Absalom's place, but he couldn't. But, of course, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ, a millennium later, would willingly do. The cross of Christ is the place where God's justice and God's compassion perfectly meet. On the cross, the Lord Jesus chose to face God's judgment in place of people like you and me. He did for us what David couldn't do for Absalom. And have you wondered why it was death by hanging on a cross and not, for example, death by drowning or stoning or anything else? Was it not to make clear for us that Jesus was taking upon himself God's curse? He became like an Absalom so that Absaloms like us could be forgiven and free. So as we leave this passage for the time being, let's see together clearly the certainty of destruction for those who refuse to repent. Let's allow ourselves to feel its tragedy. 
and then allow that to drive us out into the world with a message of hope. Let's point a perishing world to the cross of Christ. And by his death, may many Absaloms find repentance and pardon and peace. Let's pray. Before I lead us in a prayer, why don't we take a moment to talk to God about what we've heard, respond to him in our hearts, and we might well want to speak to him about someone in particular that we'd love to put their trust in the Lord Jesus, a moment to pray on our own. Let's continue in prayer together. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, still enemies, Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to do for us what David couldn't do for Absalom. We thank you that our rebellion, our treason, our treachery, our guilt has been laid on him so that we could be forgiven and free. Father, we pray for your help. Give us a sense of urgency about the mission you've given us. Help us to see the certainty of judgment, the tragedy of judgment, but also the escape from judgment in the person of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.